wanna continue uh, the thread and framework about what we're learning through the book of Mark. And to continue us on this journey uh, is to learn about the ways the kingdom of God, Jesus' kingdom of God, uh, is working and how we can see that in our everyday lives. Uh, This morning, we are in Mark 7, verse 24 through 30, and we'll read in a moment. But before I begin, I want to add just a little caveat of our passage today. And this passage of scripture, I promise you, is full of deep richness of what's happening here. Um, It's also full of a lot of nuance, and so we're going to kind of like harness a little bit of power of like the Bible nerd, which I'm really excited about. Um, And I'll try to add a little bit of stories, but a lot of it will be us engaging with the text and what Jesus is doing. And, you know, I don't know if you are like me, but I love to people watch. And so there's nothing better than going to the parks in San Francisco and watching all the weird, weird interactions and conversations. And so for us, I kind of want us to to both be a really amazing divine observer about what's happening between this woman and Jesus, as well as to put ourselves in the position, what would we interact with? How would we converse with Jesus if we were putting ourselves as well? So it's kind of this fun interplay slash Bible nerd slash weird observation. So, but we're along for the journey. So, um, but in this text, we're gonna see Jesus's character and modeling of who he is and how he actually sees us as well. So this sermon requires um, our joyful participation and open hearts and, like I said, a little bit of a Bible nerd alert too. So let's begin. We're in Mark 7, verse 24. Uh, We're starting there. It says, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Okay, if you're like me, (laughs) I read that and I'm like, what is going on? (laughs) Um, And I usually, you know, couple that with like, Lord, I have a lot of questions going in my head. Uh, To me, one of the first ones I usually ask is, does God give preferential treatment? Is this scripture talking about he's giving a hierarchy of someone that he prefers over another? Um, Does God just refer to this woman and this woman's daughter as a dog? How offensive. That is weird. Um, And also, what other things are you talking about favoring here? Um, If we look deeper, uh, we might be asking ourselves too, like, is Jesus being racist in some way? Like he's showing preference And then also to mostly just chaos and confusion of like, what actually are you doing here? So this raises more questions. And maybe like you, sometimes it just raises a little bit of doubt of like, what is going on? Why is this making me so uncomfortable? 
Uh, Church, these moments, actually when we read in scripture, are actually moments to pause, to also reflect, reflect, and also give us a response of how to either react or also engage with the text. So there's a few ways that actually when we read a scripture, a passage like this, I wanna talk about some ways that we can respond to that before we move on. The first one is we can minimize. I sometimes do this still today by accident and not intentionally, but sometimes I read something that's confusing and I think, well, I really just care about the whole Bible anyways. Like, why does it matter (laughs) that I read this passage? And actually I would say and challenge us that we're missing out on what God is doing. The authors believe that it was important to be in the Bible, so we as followers actually should have the same weight of that as well. Um, Number two, we can judge passages like this from our actual world view. So there's questions about preferential treatment. I think, wow, am I comparing in my modern day American Western context, am I comparing it to actually Jesus's Eastern, Middle Eastern context and culture as well? There might be some differences. I guarantee there are, um, but I don't want to miss some of those parts. And then the third one is we can ignore it completely, which which I call the young Sunday school answer where Jesus is the answer for everything without having to think and engage our mind. And I want us to like use our intellect and what we think and feel and hear from Jesus, how to engage in this text, which leads us to actually, I would suggest there's a fourth way. And that's to fully engage honestly and earnestly and faithfully with what Jesus is saying. And so we might have a moment of like, ooh, what is that? I want us to kind of press in a little bit to be like, there is more here and I don't wanna miss it. I don't want you guys to miss that as well. So I also wanna say that before we move on to, this passage is a parable. It is not necessarily literal. And so Jesus's public ministry, often he spoke to the public in parables. Now, parables were used by Jesus to convey simple stories to provide more profound lessons or teachings. So one of the reasons we believe Jesus often spoke in parables throughout his public ministry was so that people could understand deeper and be drawn closer to him. It's not actually to confuse people or make people like go off on their own way. It's actually to provide some meat to like chew on for a while that we actually move towards Jesus, the person of Jesus of what he's saying. So instead of, you know, minimizing or ignoring or judging this passage, I want us to actually know that it's important to reflect on that. And that I also want us to engage in this way together. So honestly, earnestly, and faithfully. So Before we move on, I wanna pray for us this morning um, with that mindset. So let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for your presence, God. We want more of your presence with us. God, would you give us openness to engage with this text, but also being in your presence with one another as a larger church this morning. God, would we turn our ears towards you and our hearts towards you? And God, would you give us a posture of openness and love? And God, I have faith that you're gonna use me and my words and whatever else you want to, my capacities to reveal something special about you, Jesus, about what makes you unique. And God, expand our imagination about your kingdom of heaven. Thank you for your presence. Amen. Amen. 
So as we read first through this passage, at first glance, we can look at it at high level. We think, wow, this is a story about a woman who has a demon-possessed daughter. Um, and that's, first of all, that's crazy. And this woman is actually desperately seeking healing for her daughter. She is stopping at nothing. But I also wanna say that this story is not just about the interaction of the woman and Jesus. And this story is not just about the questions and conversations and the pleas that happen between this woman and Jesus. It's actually about a lot more happening here as well. And I wanna be able to clue us in on what I believe God is doing. See, in this story, we see Jesus crossing a variety of boundaries. It's geographical, ethnic, gender, and theological, and we're going to uncover that Jesus is showing us his kingdom of God. And it actually, it doesn't show preferential treatment, and the gospel doesn't play favorites. What's really happening is that the story and way of Jesus gives us all full access to God's love and his new life. It's in it that we discover that God favors great faith, not people. It's this great faith is what God intends to draw out of us as his followers. It's for you and me, and that actually God has a plan to draw out great faith in us as well. So let's begin. We see this in this chapter. Jesus has been doing public ministry for quite some time. He's been uh, healing and feeding people, and he's been gaining notoriety in crowds of people that are following him, and many people have been hearing about him. And needless to say, he's been preaching publicly, and his like, crowds are getting larger and larger, and also, he's just been very, very busy. So we see actually in Mark uh, 7, verse 24, we start and say, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. I want us to focus on the second part of this verse that I really love. It says, he did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. See, his ministry and the gospel that he was preaching was so far reaching, far beyond what I think he even imagined, that he found it really hard to actually find rest. So the region of Tyre was regarded as also Gentile lands. So also, it also contained many Jews as well. So Jesus entered this land of Tyre and it was a setting of mixed population of both Gentiles and Jews. So remember that Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. So the land that he's entering into is hostile enemy territory, but it was filled with those seen as unclean according to Jewish culture and background. And see, Jesus is entering enemy territory trying to find a safe place to rest, which should engage our imagination to be like, why is that? See, he didn't necessarily was going to Tyre to do ministry. In fact, it's expected that because of such an intense pressure and public ministry and people wanting things from him, the only way he could get a way to escape was to go to enemy territory. It's as if Jesus also knew that going to unclean territory, that of where Gentiles were, that the Jewish leaders and people who were after him would not dare follow him. It's kind of like saying Mother Teresa after her public ministry and all the things that she did, she was gonna tell everyone that she was gonna go to the Vegas Strip for rest and relaxation. So it's also just something strange. We're like, what is going on? Why would Jesus do that? And okay, I guess that makes sense. Like no one would ever think to follow me to this place where I'm unexpected, at least expected to be doing ministry, right? 
also here in Tyre that we see that Jesus enters a house of a Gentile, which is also offensive and would not, and also would have made himself as a Jewish rabbi unclean. I'd like to note that, that is, this also is not the first time that Jesus would enter, enter Gentile territory or a house in his ministry, and it's actually also not his last time that he would do that as well. So Jesus is revealing some insight that even in his escape and rest, his intention and purpose is something that we continue to discover. The strangeness of this should draw us as hearers and readers into asking, what is Jesus up to? So we also look back in verse 25. It says, in fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose daughter was possessed by an impure spirit and came and fell at his feet. I want us to notice the way that this woman approaches him. She's in desperation. Have we ever been so desperate for something that we would stop at nothing to have that accomplished? Or we wouldn't take no for an answer? I imagine the mothers and mother figures that don't want anything to stand in the way of the people that they love. I have this funny like imagery of a mama bear and I literally get why I would literally, <laughs> if I am possessive or, or um, protective over my friends and family, these mama bears have the same kind of fierce, unapologetic love. This woman was desperate for Jesus. And I also wanna imagine ourselves as this mother in this story. Her daughter is demon possessed. The amount of anxiety and helplessness is heartbreaking to imagine that she's feeling. The kind of desperation just takes it even further when she's like, there is nothing I can physically do for my daughter, but yet she is possessed and I desire healing for her. See, she was dealing with the demonic and that if she knew that Jesus was who he said he was, he was also the person he was claiming to be, that the Messiah and the Savior, then this would be the man to help her. See, she wasn't a Jesus follower at the time. She had just heard about the ways and the way of the gospel and what he could do. We see her approach here too. She fell at his feet. In verse 26, it says, the woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. I also wanna take a moment and say that this story of the Syrophoenician woman also shows up in the book of Matthew as well. And I also think that's really interesting because it's kind of like we get to see the same story of Jesus, but in two different angles that actually reveals a little bit more about the richness of his character. See, the two points of view are meant to enhance the story and the conversation of this uh, Jesus and this woman. See, in the book of Matthew, Matthew refers to this woman, the Syrophoenician, as a Canaanite. This was a kind of label of ethnicity that referenced an Old Testament label that once we heard that, people who listened to that would trigger definitions and ideas of things like a dangerous people, a sworn enemy, a foe, and people that were opposed to God. This was meant to be a derogatory name, this Canaanite label, and would evoke the reader to understand what was at play here by a name or label. However, an interesting point here in the book of Mark, Mark refers to this woman as her factual ethnocentric background, as a Syrophoenician, meaning Syrian, born in Phoenicia. But in this setting, he's highlighting not a derogatory label, but a distinguishing between Jewish background and Gentile background. See, what Jesus is doing is starting to reveal his larger kingdom work at play. 
that in the book of Mark, the label of Syrophoenician would signify the hearer or reader to evoke a historical and cultural dissonance between these two types of cultures and people. Meaning there were huge gaps ethnically between Jews and Gentiles. And for Jesus to be right in the middle of this, talking to this woman, a Gentile, someone who was seen as unclean would be mysterious and engaging. We would wanna find out more about what that meant. And here, it also signifies that Jesus' kingdom does not play favorites. We see the first signs of how this plays out. Also further in verse 25, we say, in fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. We read that again and think, in fact, this woman, this Gentile woman, was seen desperately entering into the same house as Jesus. Remember, a Jewish rabbi, And this was also seen as culturally offensive and against the norm. Yet Jesus was not caught off guard or offended or surprised. This interaction was breaking all the cultural rules and norms. And we can be intrigued to see what happens next. We see further in verse 27 how she responds. Says first, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. So let's pause for a second. And I think, wow, we were doing so well at the beginning of this passage. I am all for Jesus breaking ethnic barriers and all that stuff. But then he starts talking about dogs and I get really confused. (laughs) Um, But I also wanna remind us about our fourth approach, right? We're gonna engage faithfully and honestly, and we can ask ourselves, what the heck does that mean? Um, And I promise you, like we're gonna discover together, this is not what Jesus intends. So we're gonna pause. I wanna take us on this little Bible nerd journey. So you guys get to, you basically have to come with me on it. Um, But I wanna call this one about children, bread and dogs about this very specific verse and interaction here. And I wanna talk about this first part of it about children, right? So we see in verse 27, Jesus says, first let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. So first, I wanna say that he isn't calling this woman or this woman's daughter a child as a derogatory way or he's actually giving preferential treatment to dogs or children above this woman or her plea. Actually, the children that Jesus is referring to is the house of Israel, the nation of Israel. Now, this is important because it was a parable, remember a parable, (laughs) around Jesus's prophetic witness and goal of his public ministry. This is his intention from the very beginning. We see in Romans 1, 16, it says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. We see that in the Old Testament that Jesus is just claiming this past prophecy as he promised and that it's true. It was a reminder that Jesus' claim as the Messiah, he came for the house of Israel to repent. And this was actually his first claim. And he's stating too in this that his mission of pursuing the house of Israel has not been swayed or changed. His mission stays the same despite the ignorance or refusal of the Jewish people. His mission stayed the same. So he's reminding them of his intention. 
The invitation here was extended also to both the Jew and the Gentile by the way of the cross for all who believe. We'll read again in verse 27. It says, first, let the children eat all they want, he told them, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. So the next stop on our Bible nerd journey is bread. (laughs) So the bread that Jesus is talking about and referring to isn't crumbs or leftover scraps that he's offering for the dogs or the children, or it's not in reference to this woman's worth of what she's worth, just crumbs from the table. Actually, Jesus is referring to bread in what Jesus has to offer, meaning bread equates new life in Christ. So John 6, 35 says, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. See here, Jesus is describing in his parable of his first mission, right, to save the house of Israel by offering them bread, new life first. He's also foreshadowing that bread, this new life in Christ, is actually one of abundance. It's not scarcity, meaning it's available to all people and he has more than enough for this. So it's not about crumbs, although we do love carbs all day. So um, back in verse 27, again, we're gonna move on to dogs. It says, first, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. See, Mark isn't calling this woman or this woman's daughter an offensive derogatory term of dog. I do wanna talk about two labels of dog in Jewish time during Jesus's public ministry in the New Testament. See, the first kind of reference uh, or the name of dog would be have found during Jesus's time. It is the type of dog that we're seeing roaming the streets as wild, unclean, rabid, dangerous, scavenger-like, and they uh, often eat garbage. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Greece, but they have these massive packs of wild dogs that roam the street and just go crazy. This is not the type of dog that Jesus was referring to. But also this type of dog, this description of this like unclean dog was often what Jews might have called Gentiles. This term dog, like in today's language is kind of equated to like a B word, a very offensive derogatory label. It signifies unclean. That is not the type of dog that Jesus was referring to. This is not the label he was talking about. Now, the second kind of dog is the kind of dog that Jesus was referring to. And I'm not talking about the type of dogs that we love, right? Like, we know that SF loves their dog. Go to a dog park and look at how many humans are talking to animals like they are humans. <laughs> and I was just out you know, walking the other day and I thought, oh, I'm gonna pass the stroller. And I look in and there's three dogs <laughs> inside a baby buggy. So you know what? I don't need to tell you that we love our dogs here, right? Yes, so, um, but you know, even that, the love of that kind of dog is actually not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about an even deeper name or label of dog. The noun he used here when he said dog, it's diminutive, which means pet-like or puppy-like as much as we can kind of be playful about that. Um, But this is the kind of dog that Jesus is referring to. This is also when he calls her this label of dog or reference it in this passage, it changes Jesus's tone in the conversation, right? It's implied that these kind of puppy-like dogs, this label, have masters and do not roam aimlessly around. 
this reference were the kind of dogs that enjoyed a place in the master's house. And he was actually commenting on the dog's approach to the master. That there was a divine order in this approach and that the God intended it to be this way. It was a reminder of the master that that meant that we belong to God. That we actually have a place and a belonging in the family of God. So that's my Bible nerd journey of bred children, dogs. <laughs> and, um, but all of this refers to God's intention of reminding us that we actually have an invitation to belong to the family of God. That's for all people. So first, I also wanna go back to seeing like, what does this actually mean? What was she saying in response in the common day language, right? So by saying she hears that Jesus refers to her as the second type of dog, and this woman understood what Jesus was saying. It was like he was saying, hey, you know, as a mother, you know how families are. You are a mother, you know this. You actually know also how family mealtimes go. There's a divine order, right? Well, we hope there's a divine order. But first, the children will eat at the table and afterward, their pets will eat too. Jesus is saying, remember, like the puppies or these pet-like dogs must not eat food from the table before the children do. Jesus is reminding her that there is a divine order that must not be violated. And that is actually what he's coming to offer, divine order. So let's pause. Let's think about, you know, in desperation, if we were to come to Jesus and ask something, do you think we would have gotten that message that he just spoke to her about like children and bread and dogs? I want us to think like, even in the desperation of this mother, she was seeking something that was heartbreaking. And for Jesus to respond in a way that is about something so unrelated, I want us to think how we would respond. I know for me, I would be like, what the heck is going on? Like, I would be really defensive and like angry about it and actually be like, have you not just heard what I was saying? But I also wanna say that that is not how this woman responded. See, of all the things, when Jesus spoke to her, this woman understood Jesus's parable immediately. That in and of itself is a miracle. I could study the Bible for my whole life. I have been studying it for a while and I'm not even nearly close to understanding and reading Jesus's parables. But this woman, something about it, she understood immediately. See, Jesus is speaking to her in a way and a language that she would understand. He used imagery and context that she would understand. And more importantly, she gave insight to that of a woman like her, a Syrophoenician, someone who seemed unclean, a Gentile, someone who was labeled this way and actually thought she would never have access to Jesus. But he spoke to her in a way that she understood. And Jesus actually gave her a challenge and an invitation in his response that was personal to her and actually she understood immediately. You know, some scholars believe that this woman and Jesus almost engaged in this type of witty banter that was almost playful. I love conversations like that, by the way. And she was able to understand immediately what he said. She actually understood what Jesus said, was able to flip what he said, the parable, and respond in a way to Jesus that Jesus himself would understand too. I kind of like to imagine this as like an insane rap battle where you're just like giving digs at each other and then being able to understand it with such a quick wit. This is what I imagine that conversation is like. 
See, this woman responds and she understood Jesus's parable confidently and responds in verse 28. We see her say, Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. See, in other words, it's saying, and she's admitting, yes, Lord, I get that order that you just challenged me with. But I know the puppies or pet-like animals, they eat from that table too. And I am here for mine as well. She's very bold (laughs) in understanding that asking, like I said, in desperation in that posture. And she's also saying even further in a different way, yes, Lord, I know I am not from Israel. I'm also seen as unclean. I am not Jewish. I also don't call myself a Christian or a Jewish follower. Yet because of this, I know this might mean that I do not have a place at this table or the table that you're describing, and I accept that. Yet, because she fully understands in this moment who Jesus is, she ends up calling him Lord. And this is very important. In verse 28, this is the only time in the book of Mark that this woman or someone will call Jesus Lord audibly. She believed. She saw him for who he was, who Jesus was, the gospel he had, and she believed. So this woman got it, and she actually did something that no Jew or Gentile even could come close to in Mark's gospel story. She even goes further as she replies, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. See, by admitting and understanding this, this woman also does not have a way of being shameful towards herself or defensive. She also puts herself in a position that is not negative or derogatory, but in a complete understanding of actually who Jesus is. See, she's implying before she believes and calls him Lord that the submission to Jesus' categorization of her, even if this means that Jesus will refuse to help her or answer her plea. See, and what happens next is very subtle and powerful, and I don't want us to miss this. We see that actually her response, it's about her posture. It's her posture in response to Jesus. It's in her nothingness that she comes with a complete openness to Jesus. And it's in humility and humbleness. And Jesus replies to her in verse 29. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. I also don't want us to miss the importance also here of her posture as well. We see that he responds for such a reply, or in other words, Jesus says, hey, because of what you have just said. He recognizes her posture of nothingness and openness to him, to Jesus. And he sees her humility and humbleness. And also what we have to notice that in Jesus's final response to her, it's actually in what she says and how she says it in her posture. And it's because of this that Jesus grants her request. So he tells her that she may leave and that the demon leaves her daughter. We also see in verse 30, she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. So one thing I want us to notice here in verse 30, one of the most important things that I often miss, but the miracle here has been worked at a distance. She believes that God healed her daughter before she even laid eyewitness to it. To operate so much in that freedom and that great faith to say, okay, I trust God that you're doing that at a distance. And I don't even know if you're doing that until I actually go see it. See, God favors great faith, not people. 
So now, what can we extract from this passage and the things that we're learning and that Jesus is not just talking about children and bread or dogs, and we also see that Jesus is not talking about giving preferential treatment and the gospel doesn't play favorites. We actually see that the gospel came for all people. You know, and Jesus doesn't stop there. He's actually wanting and desiring to draw great faith out of you and me, his followers. See, Jesus desires such a great drawing out of faith that we actually get to experience the real Jesus. It's not about answering prayers, which yes, he, he could do that. But what he's really after is our posture and our response and being with him, the real Jesus. See, while the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus desperate and was wrestling with both the divine and the demonic, but what she also got, more importantly, was closeness and intimacy and a conversation with the real person of Jesus. And this real kind of Jesus, this person of Jesus is available to us in pain and suffering in our desperation and even in the demonic. See friends, one thing I can't pretend to know is why those things exist, why suffering and pain and trials exist. And I'm not quite sure that the point of our life with Jesus is to escape or eliminate all the pain and suffering and evil. I actually don't know why. That's one of the questions I'm gonna ask Jesus when I see him. But don't mishear me by saying I want to minimize or justify or ignore the suffering or pain or trials in our lives. Those are such real felt experiences. But that's not what I wanna point us to today. I'm trying to point us towards Jesus, not away from him, when we encounter trials or suffering. And Jesus desires you and me to be reconciled, to be turned toward him with great faith and love. See, what I can share with you is what I know about Jesus and the person of Jesus. And what I can share with you is the power of the gospel and the love of Jesus that is real, felt, and tangible. And he sits with us in our suffering and struggle and trials. And also I can share with you that as a community, as a church, we, this is our call to be with you and to be with one another in our suffering and our trials. And it's also what we need one another to draw out our great faith, not just Jesus, but one another as well. I can also tell you that following Jesus sometimes doesn't come easy and that I don't need to explain to you that struggle happens in our life and it's there. And also it can be overwhelmingly demanding sometimes and that we are also even desperate at times. But what I can say is that we learn together in community about the ways in which Jesus draws and builds up our great faith capacity. As I close, I want us uh, to be open to Jesus. I wanna share with you three things that I've learned about just great faith and what I'm gonna keep continuing to learn. I'm sure there are more, but I wanna share with you three. The first one is great faith is drawn out when we are desperate for God. I mean, the kind of desperation that makes us dependent on God, where we are persistently seeking nothing but God. And this is the kind of desperation that I would imagine this kind of mother in our story feeling, that her child was possessed. And listen, she was not about to take no for an answer. We see from the Syrophoenician woman's response is actually what is most important here, her desperation and her posture. She approached Jesus in a way of humility and faith and dependence. 
The second thing is great faith is drawn out when we know where our true power lies. See, the mother knows that her daughter is possessed, which means she knows what is demonic. And she's aware of and has heard of who Jesus is. And she believes that Jesus's power can do this. See, the woman knows who she is as she acknowledges that. It's with honest reverence and humility. But the woman also knew who she was in light of who God was. See, this woman approached Jesus again with humility and great faith. And Jesus did not grant this woman's request because he was lording power over her in some way. No, Jesus is Lord and he is full of love. He was moved by her approach and her posture of humility and faith. He was motivated by love. And this is where his power lies in his love, that she was aware actually that Jesus had the ultimate power to fulfill her request. The third thing is great faith does not waver in the face of suffering or trials. We see in this interaction that Jesus at first glance called her a dog or referenced crumbs from her children. Now, could she have misunderstood? Yes. Could she have been offended? Yes, but she didn't. She didn't get offended. She did not go out in a huff wondering what's wrong with Jesus. <laughs> she also did not ask herself in shame by asking, you know what, what's wrong with me? Or what's wrong with the way that I asked that? She was not deterred. See, she knew she was a Gentile and she understood that Jesus's ministry was for Jews, but before she understood the real invitation, she was unapologetic about her approach to Jesus. So she had turned those trials and obstacles on their heads in desperation and in faith. And with humility, she came and she agreed that she did not deserve the children's bread. But see, she wasn't asking for what she deserved. She was asking for undeserved favor, for love and for grace. And her faith did not waver in that. See, church, let us be people of great faith that never stop asking or seeking or knocking. In Luke 11, verse nine says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Church, our invitation today is to be a people of great faith. And that's together as well. We can allow God to draw this kind of faith out of us and we allow one another to help us do that, to activate that kind of drawing out an invitation of great faith together. We're gonna end and we're gonna move into a time of response.